Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is more guy talk, or guys who talk, and they have assembled around the studio table to take your questions. So please send them over. Do not hesitate. The text line is open, 877-933-2484. I pray that we will answer every question with biblical uh, accuracy and humility. My panel today is Dr. Greg Borgon, Tom Parrish, and Jeff Verdorn. <laughs> so to abbreviate, I've got Dr. B, Tom P, and Jeff V. That's the team. So let me know what questions you have. When we were talking about intercessory prayer in the previous hour, if you just joined us, that was a lively conversation. A nice comment came in that said, I'm not advocating for intercessory prayer to people that have passed or saints that have passed. However, I can recall King Saul going undercover to a diviner, and I believe the spirit of Samuel came and and chastised him for doing so. I think he gave him some bad news, too. He did. Absolutely. That's a good (laughs) Good warning. Good word. Yeah. All right. Um, Let's see here. Um, Praying through saints is the same as having to go through the priest as in the Old Testament, but the veil of the temple was torn in two, significantly giving us direct access to the Father. The Bible also says that Jesus is our intercessor. That's another comment that just came in. It's a good comment. I I agree with them. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel would go through the priest, through the sacrificial system, in order to reach God who was behind the curtain. At the death of Christ, the curtain was torn, uh, symbolically saying, hey, there's a new way to, to come to me. And there is one mediator now between God and man, and that's the person of Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself once for all and sat down at the right hand of the Father. So he was our perfect sacrifice. And so now we can come before the the throne of grace, as Tom mentioned earlier, uh, with confidence. Mm-hmm. All right, gentlemen, in the last 30 days, uh, answer this question. I have spent more than 10 minutes in the book of Proverbs or less than 10 minutes in the book of Proverbs? I can say more. Okay, Jeff? Uh, exactly 10 minutes in the book of Proverbs. (laughs) More. More. Okay. Let me pull out a proverb that I I find really fascinating. Proverbs 19.3 says, A man's own foolish acts destroy his life, but but his heart is angry with the Lord. So basically a guy blows up his own life and then is mad at God. Yeah. You ever heard that before? Yeah. Yeah, not taking responsibility for our own uh, foolishness. Mm Mm-hmm. It's always always easy to blame the Lord when things don't go your way. Of course. But 95% of the time, you're the one who created the problem. So that's usually where it it stems from. Or by the decisions you made, you've opened yourself up to things you shouldn't have in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I've heard lots of this. Yeah. Dr. B, do you have a a proverb that you have been been focusing on the last month that you would be able to share? Yeah. Our Heart of Warrior Ministry, we're launching new groups again this, this fall, or, or right now, as a matter of fact. And it's based on Proverbs 4.23, above all else, 
guard your heart, for from it comes the wellspring of your life. And the power of that passage is, notice it says, above all else. In other words, make it a high priority. Above all else, guard your heart. Be vigilant. Don't uh, be passive. Stand your watch on the wall. Guard your heart, for from it comes the wellspring of your life. In other words, whatever is in there, good or bad, will manifest itself in overt behavior that will bring glory and honor to God or dishonor and shame. So the idea is, above all else, guard your heart, for from it comes the wellspring of life. Whatever is stored in there will manifest itself in behavior, either bringing glory and honor to God or dishonor and shame. So, yeah, <laughs> that proverb. Nicely done. All right, gentlemen, here's the, our next question. Does the, Holy, does the Bible teach us to pray to the Holy Spirit or to petition the Holy Spirit during prayer or worship? I don't think there's any direct statement that tells us to do that. I think so long as we identify the Holy Spirit with Jesus and not just make it a spirit all by itself out there, and that's why I caution people even praying to the Father. The Father is abstract for most people. We know the Father through Jesus, and we know the Spirit through Jesus, and I think that when we talk about praying in Jesus' name, I don't think there's just a tack on at the end. I think it is the source of power. So you can pray to the Holy Spirit, but you're praying to the Holy Spirit through Jesus' power. Well, you read a passage like Romans eight twenty six. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is a part of prayer. The Apostle Paul wrote, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So, I mean, it's not ex- ex- saying explicitly, no. but it, it seems to be implied. It's more like a coach, and I don't want to make this trivial, but I coach for many years. The Holy Spirit is there to make you, enlighten you, empower you, to get you focused on the right thing. And that's where, when we're focused on the right things, the Word of God, the shed blood of Jesus, we're in the right realm. Yeah, yeah. there is no New Testament examples of praying directly to the Holy Spirit that I am aware of. I'm not either. No, and there, the pattern of prayer that Jesus gave, of course, is to the Father, our Father who art in heaven, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, holy is your name. Um, I find it interesting. It's It's funny that there's so much kind of confusion about this or practices about this because uh, well, I'm sure we've all heard prayers where someone starts and says, Father, we pray about this, and Jesus, we pray about this, and Holy Spirit, we pray about this. I think it's kind of like just to make sure you cover all your bases <laughs> or something, right? Yeah. Well, Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. God is God. So when you're praying to God or the Holy Spirit or to Jesus, you are praying to but God. It, the, the, I, I think one of the patterns, how I think of it, and it basically is consistent with what you guys just said. I always think of praying to God the Father in the power of the Spirit and by His power. because yeah. In the finished work of Christ on the cross. And in Jesus' name because it is, it is consistent with His nature and character. That's what I, what I understand is in when we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying in, in consistent with His nature, His will. Yeah, um, I, when okay. you're praying to God who is the... It manifests themselves in the three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you're praying, and you just pray to God, you, you, you're covered, I mean, <laughs> from what you're If they are to. the Godhead, yeah. then you, you're praying to all of them, yeah. whoever you address your prayer to. All right, let's see. Here's another question, gentlemen. Uh, as I become more mature in faith and fellowship, 
The leading of the Holy Spirit has me to lay hands on people, cast out demons, and pray for healing, miracles, and resurrection. I love being in the Lord's will, but as I grow, I also feel more attacks from those within the church who don't do those things. Why? Because it's a mixed bag, and we have to be wise about doing this. On the one hand, um, I've laid hands on people and see them healed. I don't have the power to command them to be healed on my own. I pray with the command or the name of Jesus, and I've seen people healed. I've seen demons lead people. I have not seen any. I have not been involved in anything called a resurrection, but I don't doubt the Lord can do whatever He wants to do. My goal is to be available to the Lord so He can use me any way He wants. Now the tragedy is, and the hard thing for me is, I prayed over people that have died. Mm-hmm. I prayed over people that didn't get well. Uh, that really bothers me to no end. So I would say with this gentleman, uh, yeah, you're going to have people in the church that are going to maybe be upset or not understand that. Just use it wisely and use it humbly so that when you, you're with people, uh, you're doing it not— I, I, Here's the thing I've always told my church. If we were ever led at St. Paul's, where I'm pastor, if we were ever led to have healing services, and we do have healing services— I would never want them on videotape. I would never want them out in the public arena because this is not a circus. It is a sincere, it's like counseling. You don't put a camera on somebody when you're counseling. It's just for the audience that's there and the Lord heals. Now, if he has you do it publicly, that's a different matter. But I'm very cautious of that. I think those are wise words, Tom. Yeah, I mean, for spiritual gifts, there's two general understandings of spiritual gifts. One says that the spiritual gifts have uh, ceased. They're done. They were completed at the time of the apostles. The and they're not for the, about. Yeah, that's called cessationism. Um, the other is continuationism, that the spiritual gifts are still valid today and are given to each individual Christian as the Spirit determines, as Paul says in Corinthians. Now, these gifts are, you know, f- faith, healing, speaking in tongues, miraculous powers, distinguishing between the spirits, administration helps, and so on. There's a number of these gifts. Now, it's interesting. I fall on the side that these gifts are still present today because Paul was instructing the Corinthians on spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and chapter 14. So I don't—why would he be instructing the Corinthians on the spiritual gifts if they have ceased? At the same time, I— I think we need to be very careful that we're not focusing on the gifts, but we're focusing on on the the giver of the gifts. That's right. Well, and the danger is when my mother-in-law was dying, she was 51, had cancer. She came from a very um, evangelical church, very Bible-believing, great preaching, great teaching. I was there many times. Her friends would come to the hospital, and they would pray over her to be healed. And when she wasn't healed, they began to drift away. And one of the last people said, B, your problem is you don't have enough faith, and Mm. walked out the door. Now, this is crazy that we would do this. If Jesus is the healer, it's not the level of my faith that makes him heal, because I only need the the faith of a mustard seed. It's up to the Lord as he comes to me. And so I would say, always be cautious on what you say to people about healing. And I would even say this person, uh, and keep doing what you're doing, but probably not everybody you touch automatically is healed either. It comes and goes. The Lord moves as he wants to. You know, this seems so obvious to, uh, when you get into scripture, this idea that if you just have enough faith, you will be physically 
healed. The promise of healing in Scripture, first and foremost, is a spiritual healing of the greatest disease of all, and that is sin and death. And through faith in Christ, you are healed. Now, can God physically heal someone? Absolutely, and he does. And I bet we could go around the table and talk about instances where we have seen God physically heal someone. But at the same time, Paul, who arguably had more faith than anybody who's ever walked on the planet, prayed three times to be healed of the thorn of his flesh, and God said no. Mm -hmm. Good word. Thank you, gentlemen. All right, next question. If the new covenant allows us to eat certain foods without being unclean, why did God decree in the old covenant that those foods made the Israelites unclean? Well, he did... He gave a lot of laws to Israel to set them apart from the people of the uh, the other nations of the world. And so some of them are very clear on why he would do certain things. If someone has an infection, put them outside the camp for seven days until they become clean, then they can come back out inside the camp. Remember, these people had no idea of infectious diseases, for example, but God knows. And so that one we look back on and say, oh, that's why he had them go outside the camp. You know, certain foods that are on the prohibited list can be actually dangerous to eat now that we know and about pork bacteria. Property, for instance, pork. Pork, for example. Yeah. What is it? T- tubercular, yeah, TB and can come from pork or undercooked pork. Um, so they're prob- that's probably what it was about, to set them apart and to protect them. And we know, regardless, that if Israel followed the ways of God, they would be blessed. So that's the big lesson. Now, today, after the cross, it 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 is clear to me from the study of the New Testament that we are free to eat any meat. Uh, the vision of Peter in Acts chapter 10, where all these animals come down and God says to Peter, you can eat any of these now In now that we have faith. There's a new way. It's no longer by the law. <laughs> this is our conversation from last week. But you are now free to eat uh, any meat in the meat market, Paul says, without raising objection. Yeah, and you think about it. One thing that we don't think about today is that Israel was surrounded at that time by so many other belief systems mm-hmm. and gods, and there was worship going on out there. I mean, the, the last word we get about Solomon, he was building a temple to Molech for one of his foreign wives. I mean, in Jerusalem, he was doing these things. Hard to believe. So, And they had consumed all these things. It was part of their ritual. It wasn't separate from that. And what the Lord tried to do is create a separated people in Israel to show that they had depended on him. When Jesus came, and then we are now covered by his shed blood, now, of course, Peter has given permission, go ahead and eat, and even eat with the Gentiles. And that was a big shocking thing for people. But the reality is it's not what we put in us that's the problem, Jesus said. It's what comes out of us. All right, we'll to take a little break, and then we come back with lots more God Talk. I've, if you've got a question, send it over, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Hi there, and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. I would say it's definitely chapstick season. I've been using a lot of it lately. You guys? I'm going to need some mic time. I never use chapstick. My wife does. I don't. Yeah. Really? I, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, what what brand though? Uh, 
Well, my faith radio has got their own. Stack full. Yeah, I know, right? Way to go get it. I, like it. I used to use Chapstick a lot until I discovered Burt's Bees, and I'll never go back. Really? Yep. I think Chapstick is good. Yeah, it's yeah. not bad. Yeah, I like it. I like it. All right, uh, let's see. Next question I have is, is speaking in tongues only valid if there's an interpreter who interprets it? I'm so skeptical of it. Now, I would say, before we jump into an answer, as long as I've been a believer and I've been around people who have spoken in tongues, I've never yet once in my life heard somebody say, let me tell you what he just said. Yeah, exactly. Or what she just said. I've never once in my life seen or heard an interpreter ever. I never have either, but I have heard direct reports from people that I know and trust that have. Oh, wow. Have been in a church service where tongues were spoken and interpretation happened in an orderly way, just as Paul described. So what was the first part of the question? If, are they is, valid without? Is it only without? valid if there's an interpreter who yeah. interprets? Yeah, so within church, within the organized church in a service, it, I think Paul makes it very clear that he says two or three at a time and then only with interpretation. So I would say within a church service, it should only be used or should only be valid in, the, in using the language of the question uh, with interpretation. But, but Paul also says that, so I'll pray in the Spirit, even sing in the Spirit. And so it seems to me that Paul prayed in the Spirit uh, outside of a church service uh, at any time. So tongues can, you can pray in tongues. If you have the gift of tongues, but you don't have the gift of interpretation, well then pray in your native tongue and also pray in the spiritual tongue. Um, but once you come together, it should be with interpretation. That's how Paul describes it. Well, and most churches aren't set up to handle when that happens because most people will panic if somebody speaks in tongues in a worship service. I served a church that was highly charismatic and when I got there, um, we had people doing that all the time. Right in the middle of a sermon, somebody stand up with a, a tongue. And I finally said, look, we're going to study this biblically. And biblically, there is a place in the time. But what we did is that if somebody felt they had a word from the Lord, you know, or a tongue, they had to talk to the elders who were right there in the service. And then I would ask, is there an interpretation? Because it get if you get carried away with it, it can become something that I don't think it was meant to be. Private uh, praying in tongues, I don't know. I don't see, I I know the passage you're talking about. I don't see a direct reference to it about praying uh, in tongues by yourself. Here's the hard part that most Christians don't realize. The phenomenon of speaking in tongues or praying in tongues is not alone in Christianity. It's in other religions around the world. And so we have to be wise when we do it so that we understand we're doing it because the Lord is leading us and the tongues are meant for the benefit of the church and the church's mission. Greg, do you have anything to say? Nope. I've been. <laughs> Why did you go quiet on me? Well, you know, there's understanding of whether or not are we talking about being able to speak a language you have never learned. In other words, does the language exist? And just like when um, the apostles spoke to the crowds and they heard them in their own language. Right. Right. So my sense is is that. And, and I'm willing to be corrected. I'm, this is not a hill I'm going to die on. But where I'm at right now is I believe that the speaking in tongues is being able to speak a language you have not learned. I've seen that happen in Tijuana when I was there. I've seen it happen in other circles where a missionary all of a sudden starts speaking a known language, but they have never learned it. Hmm. 
No, that's and, a very good distinction. Sure. I guess I kind of assume that going in. Uh, and I agree with you, by the way, that when tongues is spoken, when it's used in Scripture, it was uh, someone speaking in another language that they did not know that others understood. Yeah. And everywhere the word tongues is in the New Testament, you could also uh, insert uh, or other languages. So that is what tongues is. And I think your your objection is because because some churches emphasize the gift of tongues so much, there's pressure to speak in tongues, and therefore you end up getting some to, to that represent tongues or speak in tongues in a kind of a clicking or gibberish or yeah. uh, hissing or something else that's something other than an actual language. And that's what yeah. you're yeah, that's kind what of I'm speaking and, and I find it interesting that it's always the plural. When, when the scripture talks about it, it's not it's talking about tongues. <laughs> So it's and from my view, it's it's languages we have not learned or you hadn't. I agree. I agree with that. Look, I've I've been to a friend's church and it was a Pentecostal church and and the first time the pastor got up there and said, "Okay, now bow your heads and pray." He began to pray and everybody in the church started to speak in tongues. Oh yeah. I mean, literally everybody except for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. There was a hundred people in the church and everybody was speaking in tongues and I didn't know. 1 Corinthians 14 at the time, and it kind of took me back, right? But then I learned and studied Scripture, and Paul is very clear. If, if This is 1 Corinthians 14, 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. So I think that practice that I witnessed is not consistent with Paul's admonition for orderly worship in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the one and the reason I said no, Bill, I I just I I have follower friends that are are Christians who have come from a charismatic background or Pentecostals and I I just don't want to insult them by by telling them that their experience is not valid. That's why it's a hill I'm not going to die on. Yeah. But I'm just giving you my understanding it. of it. Yeah. I mean, I I had a there was a guest pastor last Sunday at church, and there were a number of times that he broke into tongues. And I felt, well, are you including the congregation in this, or are you excluding the congregation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as the gatekeeper of an afternoon uh, Christian talk show, if somebody brings up a word, uh, I usually have to go, whoa, 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 hang yeah, on. Yeah, what does that word done, mean? Yes, yes, because exactly. you're losing my audience right yeah, now, right, yes, and right. I don't want that to happen. Right. So is it is it was that more about the pastor showing his his spirituality or was he rolling out an invitation to understand or to exclude? I don't know. I think sometimes as pastors, we can get in habits. And if you're in a setting where pastors are doing that all the time, if you're in a church where they're speaking in tongues and they're just, it just happens. It's amazing how all the other pastors begin to do that too. And I'm not putting that down. It's just part of the reality, but you can't go into a setting like that as a guest speaker and break into tongues without somebody there to interpret. And the first thing the other pastor should have said, the lead pastor, is, is there an interpretation? Because if there isn't, then it doesn't have much benefit for the people that are there. And I'd be cautious of that. Can I read Paul's admonition? Because I think Please. this is, makes so much sense. He says, and this is 1 Corinthians 14, again, I'm going to start in verse 7. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a pipe or a harp, How will anybody know what tune is being played unless there is distinction in the notes? This is what he's describing. He's comparing this to tongues. We 
don't if you're speaking in a tongue and nobody's interpreting it and nobody's understanding what you're saying, it's like a, a clanging symbol, a note mm-hmm. that's not playing any yeah. tune. He goes on to say, and if it's the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? He goes on to say it's the same with speaking in tongues. How will anybody be able to say amen if they don't understand the word? So I think tongues within the church environment or what you just described is meaningless to the body. It doesn't build them up at all. Nicely done, gentlemen. All right. Uh, Paul's letters can be perplexing at times, but I think Peter's can as well. I'm in 1 Peter three nineteen, And if I can just uh, talk about this verse where in 18, Jesus is raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. But then at the beginning of verse 19, it says that he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So, hmm, did Jesus undertake a preaching campaign for a couple of days? Well, this gets to the heart of where did Jesus go for three days and three nights, right? So, um, this is, this is if I can, there's, there's a particular verse in Matthew that tells us, I think, where Jesus went, and that is Jesus himself said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is described in the heart of the earth? Well, it's this place called Hades. Luke uh, 16 describes Lazarus and the rich man going down to Hades. Two sides, there's the righteous side and the torment side, And the righteous side is for all the Old Testament believers who believed in God, were righteous, and therefore went to the good side or the comfort side or the bosom of Abraham side of Hades. And then there's the torment side where where typically it's described in Matthew as where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus obviously went to the good side for three days and three nights, and he spoke to those who were there. He preached the gospel, if you will, not because some could be saved because they've already died, their fate is sealed. But he was proclaiming, I am the one that came and died and will rise again. And then elsewhere in Scripture, it says he sets the prisoners free on the good side and will bring those up. So David, uh, Isaiah, Noah, Adam, all the righteous from all the Old Testament are brought with Christ at the resurrection up in heaven, and I believe they're up in heaven today. Who were these spirits that he were preaching to that formerly did not obey? Who were they? Uh, well, there's one interpretation that suggests that it was those who lived during Noah's time, before okay. Noah uh, mm-hmm. it w- went into the ark, that those were the individuals that, that Christ was speaking to. And then wouldn't Jesus have this beautiful compassion to say, look at you, you, you perished before me. And, and well, you have to reconcile that with other passages in Scripture that says that it's appointed for man to die once I get it. and then face yeah. judgment. I'm just having so, a conversation. I know, but there, <laughs> it's, it's very important. There are some today that, that, that teach that there is some kind of second opportunity yeah. post-death, um, and I can't remember the theological, post-mortem opportunity of some sort, uh, to receive Christ after you've died. Well, once you've died, you're now in the spiritual realm. You know what's true and what's not. The The rich man that went to the torment side of Hades, he understood his fate because he says, calls out to Father Abraham, at least send Lazarus back to my family and warn them of this place. And you know what he gets as an answer? They have Moses 
and the prophets. They can listen to them. They won't believe even if someone rises from the grave. Which begs the question of that first interpretation then. Could it possibly be that they were the people who lived during Noah's time? Uh, Yeah, I I view this broadly of all those who have passed away, died before the cross. Uh, But specifically, you're right, the imprisoned spirits of the the nephilim and you you can we could yeah. have a long conversation about the nephilim and or the fallen angels that i yeah, believe went into prison and of that peter passage, and yeah. jude talk about that they were thrown into dungeons gloomy dungeons until judgment day and so on so why would why would jesus travel to hell to proclaim his victory to any condemned person or any condemned human soul yeah so let's be precise okay it's, it's not hell it's hades okay Hades is the abode of the of the dead. So all people go to Hades before the cross. Right. All people went to Hades, the good to the righteous side, the comfort side, and the bad to the torment side. So as a man who died, that's where Jesus would go after his death. And he would go to the comfort side because he was righteous. But then he rose again to glory and power. He conquered death. Grave could not hold him. That's one of the things he did is he conquered death. And he sets the captives free. David says to God, don't abandon me in Sheol. That's basically the Old Testament name for Hades, the grave. Don't abandon me there. Don't leave me there. And God basically says, well, he doesn't answer it directly, but he says, I'm not. I have a plan. I'm going to send my son, and he's going to conquer death. And once he rises again, you will be with me in heaven forever and ever. All right. Not an easy passage for many. Right? Right. All right. Thank you, Dr. B. Appreciate that affirmation. Mm -hmm. All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, lots more Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. We would love your question, 877-933-2484. The next question after the break is, what happens to the angels in the new world? Will they live with us? Hmm. We'll see what the panel says when we come back. We still have some more guy talk time or guys who talk, so let me know what questions you have and I will ask for you. 877-933-2484. So here's the question that just came in right before the break. What happens to the angels in the new world? Will they live with us? Well, first of all, it talks about the fact that the angels will be under the dominion of of humans who will be ruling with Christ at that time. Um, so the the idea is they're created beings. They are going to be, they have eternality, just as we have a, as a created being are eternal. So they're not going to disappear at the millennium or even after the millennium. And specifically what they're going to be doing, I mean, their major function right now is messengers conveying the word of God um, and interceding uh, and at, at a, a, a important points. So who's to say that those kinds of things won't still continue in the millennium and even after the millennium? Sure. 
Yeah, I think the picture, uh, Hebrews talks about this a little bit um, in Hebrews chapter 2, that we've, we've been made lower than the angels. Jesus, Jesus as a man is lower than the angels in our humanity, but once we've been uh, resurrected, once we've been glorified, Scripture, Paul actually says that we will judge the angels, right? So at the great white throne judgment, I think that is what is that the reference to, um, we will even judge angels. So the authority, mm-hmm. all remember, at the great white throne judgment, we have God on the throne, we have Christ on the throne, whom, whom all authority has been given, but also believers will be on the throne, and we will judge the world, even angels. And then, as um, as you said, Greg, we have we have in eternity the the angels will then be some kind of ministering spirit to the elect of God, which are now glorified for all of eternity. Yep. Nice job, gentlemen. All right, here's my next question in James chapter 1. How do we count our trials as joy? Oh, you figure that out. Will you email me? Yeah, please. That'd be wonderful. I, I think it's one of the uh, most foreign things for most people to actually consider their trials joy. And yet we see the disciples giving us an example. There's a place in Acts, I believe, where they walk away after being persecuted, whipped, uh, rejoicing because they felt worthy to suffer for his name. Wow. I just learned something about weightlifting that I didn't know. I weightlifted in college. I weightlifted off and on all my life. My son has been doing a lot of studying, and he said, Dad, it doesn't do any good for you to go in and, let's say, do three sets of 10 curls with 50 or 60 pounds. You know, that just maintains what you've got. If you want to get stronger, you have to go to failure. In other words, you have to go to the point where you you just, you're fighting it so hard, but you can't get it up and you're grunting and groaning and everybody in the gym thinks you're having a problem. He said, that is when you gain strength. Well, in my life, normal problems I can deal with. But when really hard things come, that's when I have to depend on the Lord. And that's when I have to cry out because I can't conquer it. And it's like that weight. I can't lift it anymore. And I need his help to be able to do that. And that's when I get stronger. And I'm not happy at the time it happens, but it's afterward when yeah. I see what he's done to yeah. me that I can have joy. Mm. Yeah. All right. Here's a comment that came in as we were talking about tongues, which got to be a lively conversation. Mm-hmm. Depending on the purpose of the use of tongues, we see two general cases. The necessity of interpretation when the message in tongues is meant to be communicated to other people so they can be edified. That's from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5. And the freedom to not require interpretation when the speaker is simply and solely praying to God unhindered by natural understanding and do that the person may be edified. And that's 1 Corinthians 14.4. Perfect. Yeah. You could have just read that. I know. What do you need guys for, for guy talk? You just read that. That was perfect. That was okay, you done. two can leave. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Wondering if the paralytic man by the pool of Bethesda was actually saved because after he discovered who it was that healed him, <clears throat> he went to the teachers and squealed on Jesus. <laughs> He he didn't he I don't think he really squealed on Jesus did yeah, he he was just so. kind of commenting that it was that that was that Jesus that healed did they they asked if I recall they asked who was it that healed him and isn't he the one that says why do you want to follow him too or something hmm. like that is that was that yeah, that story yeah. and uh, look we have we have such a, a a couple we only have a couple passages about this guy and we really don't know if he ended up believing or not if I recall the story properly so. 
Well, when you're excited, when something really great happens to you and the Lord has produced it, most of us don't think logically about what we're going to do. We just want to tell everybody because we're so excited. And I think that's what this guy did here. Yeah. You know, this also, our point of discussion earlier about spiritual healing versus physical healing. Physical healing is great, but he's healed and he's going to die. If he wasn't saved, he's going to die a physical death and an eternal death at the, at the judgment, right? So it's, it's not physical healing that we should all be seeking. We should truly be seeking the spiritual healing from the greatest disease of all, and that is sin. And that healing only comes through faith mm-hmm. in Christ. All right, gentlemen, here's Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now, that verse I think we'll have to put in context, but the question is, what does this verse mean for Christians who are in the midst of struggling with an addiction? Well, here's my the way I interpret this in context in Hebrews 10. And this is a tough passage, granted, and there are some who think that this is about Christians deliberately sinning. I actually see the phrase, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, to reference unbelievers. Yeah, me too. Okay? So it's describing someone who has heard the truth and rejected it. Remember in Hebrews chapter 4, Um, it says it this way, the message that they heard was useless to them because they did not combine it with faith. I think it's describing the same kind of people here. Those who deliberately keep on sinning, meaning those who continue in unbelief and being dead in their trespasses and sins. The reason why it says there's no sacrifice for sin left is because they've rejected the only sacrifice for sin that's available, and that is through faith in Christ. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, I think the verse was John 5.15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Good for him, because we should be telling what Jesus has done every (laughs) chance we get. But Jesus knew the consequences of what he was doing. The religious leaders were going to turn against him. You know, I I love the passage where it says, um, you know, why do you want to stone me? And they go, you know, we, we don't stone you for this or that, but for blasphemy, you make yourself out to be God. Mm -hmm. And Jesus knew what he was into, and that's exactly what was going on. But this guy had to go proclaim. I don't know how you couldn't proclaim if you've been healed like that. Yeah, no kidding. This question comes up regularly, and I don't want to not address it, but we can touch on it and move on. But the question is, and it's a regular question, should Bible-believing Christians attend same-sex weddings of family members and other loved ones? I've been involved in this in terms of seeing in people. What I tell people is this. How is the Lord leading you? Okay. Because Jesus showed up with the tax collectors and the sinners, and, and, but he didn't participate in the sense that he got drunk and carried on with them, but he was there. There are others that probably ought not to go because they're not ready for it. I think in those kind of things, you don't have to show up and just rejoice. You can still show up as a witness for the Lord. And I had a pastor and his wife who did this, whose son, of all things, was getting married to another man. And the interesting part was is that at the reception, person after person came up and wanted to hear how he felt about it as a dad, and he shared with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unique opportunity, but not everybody can do that. Yeah, yeah there's two competing 
priorities here. The first one is you want to always make sure you're building redemptive bridges. If they're close family members of yours, do you still want to love them for who they are and be supportive of, of them? Um, for for them and to, so that you can speak truth into their lives for, for you know that's so that's one priority the second priority is as a believer you don't ever want to be accepting of of behaviors that god what god calls sin all right so i think um look we've had this conversation several times on on air and yes, each believer is going to have to decide what's right for them um one of the times we talked uh, we had an example of someone who wrote the couple, said, we love you. We 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 don't agree with the idea of same-sex marriage because we believe it is a sin in God's eyes, but we're here for you. We love you. We can't attend your mar- your wedding because we don't want to endorse it, but here's our, our gift to you, and, you know, we're, we're going to continue to love you. And and I, I, I actually kind of think that's a pretty good approach. All right. We're going to take a yeah. little break. When we come back, lots more Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk, 877-933-2484. I have Dr. B, Tom P, and Jeff V. They're sitting here waiting for your questions. Be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome to Guy Talk. I love your questions. Thank you for sending them over. If you have one, there's still time. 877-933-933. 2484. What have you learned about your prayer life in the midst of your own personal crisis, whether it be a health crisis or a financial crisis or a relational crisis? What have you learned about your prayer life that you could share? Oh, this, you know, my wife and I and our family went through a terrible period of travail for two and a half years having to do with our family. And I remember laying across the ottoman in my living room and praying and asking God to intercede. And for two and a half years, I didn't see him intercede until finally it was resolved. And I came to realize that, first of all, my timing is not God's timing. That's one thing. The second is that God operates on multiple levels at the same time with multiple people. It isn't just my request that he's paying attention to. There's other things he puts into motion, and he chooses to work through people. So he had to work with a judge, he had to work with lawyers and all the rest of it, and it was at the right time. And so after it was all said and done, I apologized and asked God's forgiveness for ever doubting him because as I look back in retrospect, I saw he was working all that time, and it came to the right moment in the right circumstance, and God honored it. And so that's what I've learned about prayer, to wait on God and uh, not give up as a result of having to wait for an extended period of time. It's taught me about the level of uh, commitment. Maybe that's the right term or not. It's easy to blame the Lord and become embittered when things don't go your way. And, uh, Lord, I prayed, I prayed. You didn't do anything like you went through, Greg, and, and missed the whole point of what he's doing. For me, I've learned that in those moments, and I face great crisis in my life, that's when I become more focused. Because I have to focus on Jesus because I don't have an answer for myself. And I find myself doing more praying and more talking to the Lord. 
and talking to others if I need to, but I need that focus. Uh, but there's still prayers that I pray that I've been praying a long time and I haven't gotten the answer I want yet. And I don't know if this life I'm going to get it, but I'm trusting the Lord anyway. Yeah, Tom, you lost your grandson when your grandson was very young. Yeah, we did. What happened to your prayer life in that time? I sat in my room, believe it or not, I'd, I'd go preach, I'd go teach, and I'd go home and sit in my room in the corner and cry and cry out to the Lord. So I physically cried and I prayed a lot and I searched scripture and I tried to understand what's going on and what are you doing in the midst of this, Lord? And how do I deal with this? I'm my first grandson, lost. Um, and it took, in my case, it took about a year and a half. And the Lord began to bring peace to my heart and he, began to, he brought people along who would say the right thing at the right time that was very helpful. Was there depression or despair in those times? Oh, sure. You were, there were, that was a cloud over your head and you thought, "Uh uh-oh, this could take me down. Yes, there certainly was. And I screamed out more for the Lord. I'll just be honest because I could see it. I could see I could fail. I could get really stupid. And I I begged the Lord, you know, get me out of this. Mm -hmm. During those two and a half years, I memorized Psalm 13 because I felt David's uh, prayer was exactly what I was going through. And here's what it says. And, and, and this is the anguish that we were just talking about. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And so that's the despair. That's what I felt like laying across that ottoman every day in prayer. But here's how he closes the psalm. But I have trusted you in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That's the only release I had when I still didn't Mm -hmm. have an answer. Good word. I think one of the truths there that you just expressed, is God will always work for your good. He is a good God, and he desires what is good for your life. Now, we live in a fallen world, uh, but God is good, and he's always looking out for your good. Jeff, I don't think you've contributed yet. I remember uh, recently you had a detached retina with the fear of losing sight, and I know I was praying for you in a sort of a panicked fashion. Uh, yeah, when I when I got the diagnosis over the phone, over the nurse line on a Sunday night around 10 p.m., and uh, I went to bed that night, and I was still up about 2 in the morning, and no my prayer life was something like, Lord, oh, please heal my eye tomorrow when I go in and had the surgery, and it was successful, by the way. Uh, but lying there in, in the dark, uh, you don't know, and it's like, oh, yeah. Lord, I really don't want to lose sight in my right eye, but, oh, you know, your will kind of thing, right? But, but Lord, I really <laughs> don't want to lose my... And, you know, that's what I find when I've had situations in my life where I'm trying to cast my cares upon the Lord, yeah. to not be anxious about anything, and just to trust Him. But in the dark of the night, when your head hits the pillow... Yeah. You keep reliving and worrying about this time. And and the only thing I can tell you is just keep casting them on the Lord. And if it takes till 2 o'clock in the morning or 4 o'clock in the morning or two years, keep casting them on the Lord. All right. So maybe right now someone's listening who is awake at 2 in the morning with Mm. an anxiety or a fear. Or maybe they're in the corner of their bedroom after a day of work sobbing, crying out to the Lord, or laying over an ottoman in desperate prayer, 
and they're in need right now of encouragement and prayer, uh, would one of you be willing to pray on behalf of these dear brothers and sisters who are in incredible despair, turmoil, or stress? I will. Father God in heaven, we just pray for all those right now that have a worry, that have a burden. Lord, we just ask that you come uh, and bring your presence into them, bring your comfort, your peace. Help them not to worry about anything, but to pray about everything and cast their cares upon you. And then you promise that your peace, which transcends all understanding, will guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. And Lord, we thank you that you are the healer. You know exactly what we need. And even though it's overwhelming, Lord, you're up there with us all the time, even when we don't sense that. You're there bringing healing. We love you, Jesus. Thank you. And in the midst of that, Lord, may they come to realize that you are worth trusting. Your history with us has proven that over and over again, that we rejoice in your salvation in the midst of our pain, that we'll sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with us. Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Greg, when you say sing to the Lord, uh, can you carry a tune? <laughs> I'm just curious. <laughs> can I carry yeah. a tune? Yeah. No. Okay, what about you, Tom Perry? No. No? Really. You can't either? No. Jeff? I used to be able to, not anymore. All right. <laughs> we got well, let's get my son saying you, Bill. Oh no, I can't either. <laughs> we could start a group called the Monster Tones. <laughs> or the Concophony group. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just a lot of noise that uh, no one would want to listen to. Yeah. But I sure appreciate you guys being here again for another uh, rousing couple of hours of Guide Talk. It's always a pleasure for me to gather around with my friends and my brothers in Christ to talk about the most important thing in the world, which is Jesus and, and God's Word. And thank you so much for all the great questions that came in today. I hope you heard some answers that gave you more things to think about. I want you to take the answers to the Word of God and measure what you hear against what the Word of God says. Be a good Berean and study the word yourself. But thank you so much for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Thank you for listening to Guy Talk, and thank you for liking us. And uh, <laughs> I just get so many nice affirming comments. It means so much. I love you. Have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.